0: Well, welcome once again to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us tonight. Tonight, as we reflect on the birth of our Savior, I want to spend just a few minutes considering Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We've already read that passage tonight. It's actually printed for you in your bulletin on page 6. You can turn there now if you'd like. And in this short passage in Luke chapter 2, we get a very down-to-earth, no-frills, matter-of-fact account of the birth of Jesus. It's almost clinical in the way Luke recounts the facts. And this shouldn't really come as a surprise because Luke is known, he's the author, and he's known, he's considered as the resident historian of the New Testament. He's an author who wrote his book with the purpose of giving an orderly account of Jesus so that people might have certainty concerning what happened. And Luke, alongside Matthew, I'm going to go ahead and use this, is that okay? Caleb, can you hear me with this? Okay. And Luke, alongside Matthew, they're the only two gospels that give us an account of Christ's birth. And Luke is the only one that really comes and gives us this much detail about the birth of Christ itself. And as we read, you can't help but think how ordinary Luke makes it all seem, especially considering he's recording the birth of the one he believes to be God in flesh. Listen to Luke's matter-of-fact account of the birth of Jesus from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration from Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with God. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us before we consider it tonight. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word and for the way that it shows us who you are and how deeply you love us. We pray tonight that as we see your beauty and glory, having visited us in human form, that you would encourage us, that you would give us freedom from sin and all the things that entangle our hearts this evening as we focus our attention on you for a few minutes. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Well, as most of you know, a few weeks ago, our 41st president, George Herbert Walker Bush, passed away. And I was driving with my family just the other day, and we noticed that some flags across town are still at half-mast. And we thought it a bit strange, and so I had to go look it up and actually found out that the flags actually stay at half-mast for 30 days to honor a passing, uh, the passing of a, a U.S. president. And the death of a president is a big deal. If you watch the news or TV during the week of Bush's funeral, you saw lots of extraordinary events meant to honor President Bush. He laid in state in the Capitol building. Uh, there was a service in the Washington National Cathedral where five current or former presidents were on the front row of that service. Highly influential and powerful men eulogized H.W. Bush. And then back in Texas, a railway was lined for miles and miles of well-wishers as Bush's body made its way from Houston, Texas, to College Station for burial. It was quite a week of extraordinary events, if you were watching. And it really highlighted the importance and influence of this man's life. And it seemed fitting. After all, there have only been 45 U.S. presidents in history. Well, against the backdrop of all this extravagance, A news story came out just a few days ago exposing the fact that for years, President Bush was the secret pen pal of a young boy in the Philippines named Timothy. For 10 years after his presidency, President Bush sponsored a child through a ministry organization known as Compassion. And as you might imagine, having a former U.S. president handwrite you letters poses some significant security risks. And so President Bush used a pseudonym. He used a different name when he signed these letters to this kid in the Philippines. He always signed his letters, G. Walker. In his first letter in 2002, this is what Bush wrote to Timothy. He said, I want to be your new pen pal. I'm an old man, 77 years old, but I love kids. And though we have not met, I love you already. I live in Texas. I will write you from time to time. Good luck, G. Walker. G. Walker. At one point, President Bush sent a note with a picture of his dog, and this is the letter he wrote. Here's a picture of our dog. Her name is Sadie. She has met a lot of famous people. She's a very good dog. She was born in England. She catches mice and chipmunks, and she runs like the wind. G. Walker. In another letter, Bush asks Timothy a question, getting a bit close to revealing his identity at this point. In that letter, Bush wrote this, Timothy, Have you ever heard of the White House? That's where the president of the USA lives. I got to go to the White House at Christmas time. Here's a little booklet that I got at the White House in Washington, signed, G. Walker. Well, eventually, Timothy found out who his pen pal really was, the 41st president of the United States. And it's such an interesting story. Because on one hand, it seems so ordinary to write short letters to a child that you're supporting. I know many of you write these kind of letters on a regular basis to kids that you support through the Ministry of Compassion. Yet on the other hand, we know it's not ordinary because the man writing the letters was once the most powerful person on the planet. And he's taking the time to send pictures of his dog with a handwritten note to a little boy in the Philippines named Timothy. It's both very ordinary on one hand and also extraordinary at the same time. In the passage we just read from Luke tonight, it seems so ordinary at first reading. It's the story of a birth, a matter-of-fact recounting of history, yet we know it's not ordinary because of the one being born. It's an ordinary count of an extraordinary birth. And this picture of the extraordinary coming to us in a very ordinary way is really encouraging for us this Christmas. What we see in this short passage is that the good news of Christ's birth is not for the pretend world. It's good news that is situated in the real world. Luke places this birth squarely in a historical context. It's situated in the midst of what we see as corrupt government officials. It's situated in the midst of disappointing circumstances, in rejection, in the midst of a painful childbirth. And this is different than we normally think of when we think of the birth story. Normally, when we think of the birth of Jesus, we envision the story with nice, warm, tender images. We imagine our nativity scenes at home. We think through the lens of Hallmark movies and crackling fires and glowing Christmas trees. We don't normally think through historical lenses when we think of the birth of Jesus. Looking at the real details of his birth. We're prone to forget that Christ's birth happened in real time, in real space, and that it interrupted people's lives. As we read this story, if we don't read it with a dose of realism, I think you and I are going to miss what God wants to give us, which is good news for our real lives. There's so much happening in this passage that we normally fail to consider. When we read this story, we don't normally consider about how scared and confused Mary must have been. Visited by an angel, having to travel on foot, likely dozens of miles, almost ready to give birth. We don't normally consider how confused and frustrated and angry Joseph likely was. His reputation having been ruined, not able to find space for a wife that he has with child. We don't think about the smell of the farm animals that they shared a room with. Likely wasn't as cozy as we normally picture it in our minds. We don't consider the fact that Mary likely had a very painful, messy, normal childbirth. And that's really worth pausing and thinking about. It's always been our history that good news is not coming into our ideal, intact, squeaky clean, awesome lives. But good news has always come to lives characterized by a mixture of difficulty and joy, of disappointment and hope, of sadness and peace, of confidence and confusion. Good news always comes into the tension and the mixture of experiences that is our real lives. We see from the Christmas story that it's always been that way. That it's how God always chooses to work in the very ordinary aspects of everyday life. In this passage, God is reminding us that the good news is for those like Mary, who, who are sometimes scared and confused. That The good news are, is for those like Joseph, who, who sometimes are frustrated and angry. The good news is for those who experience the joys and the letdowns that life throws our way, for people like us. And what we see is that the good news is not for the pretend world. And that's encouraging. That in the midst of your real life here in 2018 in San Antonio, Texas, God wants to bring you good news of great joy. No matter where you are on the spectrum of emotions this, morning, uh, this evening, no matter, no matter what's happened this past year, God wants to bring you good news of great joy that a baby was born to very ordinary parents in a very ordinary town in very ordinary circumstances. And this extraordinary baby who comes in a very ordinary way will be the savior of the world. And the ordinary birth of an extraordinary baby is good news for people like you and me. It means that maybe, just maybe, God could work in our lives. Maybe, just maybe, God wants to visit us in the midst of our ordinary. Maybe, just maybe, God wants to be a part of what we're up to here. And it's what we celebrate at Christmas, an extraordinary God who comes in a very ordinary way to meet us with extraordinary grace and love. And that's encouraging for us tonight. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the ordinariness of it all, for the way that you came. Very ordinary parents in a very ordinary town in order to bring good, extraordinary news to folks like us. We pray tonight that as we consider your birth, that that would be something that is encouraging to us, that motivates us, that causes us to wonder and worship, that you would work out things in such a way that we would be receiving your grace and your mercy through what would seem to be um, something so ordinary. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would bless us tonight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.